Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Nine to Thrive HR. I'm your host, Aubrey Whitty. Today, we're featuring the second of eight podcasts in partnership with SAP SuccessFactors. Each features an expert in the field of HR, and we'll explore some of the most pressing issues facing talent management today. Today, we're actually thrilled to welcome two guests, Autumn Krauss and Elise Glink, who are going to share their insights around financial well-being. Dr. Autumn Krauss is a principal scientist in the Human Capital Management Research Team at SAP SuccessFactors, where she is currently focused on SAP SuccessFactors' Well-Being at Work initiative, which seeks to operationalize a culture of well-being and purpose in organizations to enrich the employee experience and drive peak performance. Elise Glink is an award-winning, nationally syndicated financial journalist and author of 14 books about money and real estate topics. She is the CEO of Best Money Moves, a new financial wellness technology and coaching product, which has partnered with SAP's new work-life product to provide financial wellness to employees worldwide. So without further ado, welcome Autumn and Elise. We are so thrilled to have you here today. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Great. Indeed. Thank you so much for having us. (laughs) So I'm going to launch right into these questions. And Elise, I'm going to start with you. I'd like to know, how do you define financial well-being and why do you think it's become such a hot topic now? Well, somebody who spent an entire career helping people make smarter decisions with their money, uh, it's interesting why now the timing is now where everybody seems to be thinking about how much employees earn, how much they can save, how much their debt, whether it's student loan, credit card debt, or other kinds of debts, have piled on to a place where they really can't make it work, or the vast majority of them can't make it work. And so when you ask about financial well-being, my sense of that is how secure do you feel financially? Can you get all of your bills paid at the end of the month? Can you put away something for retirement? Do you feel like you're moving ahead down the path of your life and achieving the kinds of financial goals that you set out for yourself, whether you think they're crazy or just normal or, you know, above and beyond or not even, you know, financial well-being is about how comfortable you are and secure you feel with your finances. But for how it's become this hot topic, I think as we've seen millennials move into the workforce with the largest amount of student loan debt that any generation has ever had, We're also at the same time seeing Gen X struggling because they're really not making the kind of money they thought they would. You know, overall, we're not seeing incomes rise as quickly as I think all of us had hoped, given how hot the U.S. economy is. Um, And so I think that employers who are thinking about their workforce and want the best for their workforces and want to keep them engaged and keep them employed and not have as high turnover issues are now looking to financial well-being as being the last frontier that they need to tackle in order to have a happy, secure, and productive workforce. That's great. I, I liked your comment about kind of feeling the pressure in a way that maybe in previous generations it has not been so front and center as what it is right now for millennials in the workforce, for Gen X, et cetera, um, and having that sense of control, which we know from a large body of psychology research that control is a really important element in feeling empowered and in control of my own life. So kind of translating that to financial well-being. This kind of brings up my second question. um, And Autumn, I'm going to tap you here for this. 
When you look at SAP Success Factors' broader well-being at work initiative, where does financial well-being kind of fit into that puzzle and into that framework? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the question. And we do have that broader well-being at work initiative, which in the introduction you shared our vision. So around this operationalizing a culture of well-being and purpose in companies. And one of our guiding principles associated with that initiative is to recognize that well-being occurs at both the individual level and the organizational level. And so this idea of financial well-being really shows up in both lenses at the individual level and the organizational level. Uh, First, at the individual level, we spent probably the past six months undertaking a research uh, project to go back into the well-being literature, into what we know from organizational science, and be able to define what those key components of individual well-being are. And one of the facets that we identify that's a part of our initiative is this idea of resources. So employees having the resources needed to invest in their well-being and also to uh, achieve high performance and have engagement in their businesses. And a part of resources is financial aspects. So having the financial resources or the financial well-being to be able to thrive both at work and at home. So that very clearly is spelled out in our model of individual well-being, this aspect of financial well-being. And then additionally, at the organizational level, we have a lot of different components Uh, that represent the underlying elements of organizational well-being culture. So things like company purpose, company practices, and I think we'll get into it a bit more later, Aubrey, but the the idea being here that the company has a huge role to play in trying to foster positive financial well-being of its employees. And that would be through the benefits offerings, for sure, that we'll talk more about, but also their compensation practices and schemes, um, which I'm sure I'll bring up uh, later as well. So overall, I just would like to emphasize that this idea of financial well-being has um, elements at the individual level and also the organizational level. We wanted to make sure that it was adequately represented in our model because it is so important to companies and individuals at this point. And that's really why we partnered with Elise and Best Money Moves as well as experts on this topic to slot in their area of expertise and resources into our broader initiative. Great. Thank you. Well, and speaking of their area of expertise, um, Elise, I know that you've spent your whole career, you know, talking with people and understanding and helping people that are in or under financial stress. And so I think that all of us, though, have our own perspective or an idea in our head about what that person typically looks like um, and who they are. But can you help us understand that there might be different profiles of employees that are under financial stress? How do we identify who those people are? What are some of those um, examples that you can share? You know, first of all, there is some truth behind the stereotypes. So when you think of millennials, they do have a lot of student debt. In fact, um, Americans today have $1.4 trillion worth of student loan debt but it's not only at millennial levels. So you might think that if you have a large millennial employee base, their only or their primary concern is student loans, where if you have uh, also have some baby boomers, you might think they're only concerned about retirement or maybe healthcare issues. But in the reality is that as we move through decades of our lives, the financial stressors that we have begin to pile up, and it actually works into a perfect bell curve. So in your teens and 20s, your financial stress starts to grow, and you add in things like student loan debt, credit card debt, and you get into your 30s and your 40s and now 50s, because millennials are time-shifting everything 7 to 10 years, 
And you see that in addition to student loan debt and credit card debt, now you've got an auto loan and you've got insurance issues and you've got kids and now there's all the incumbent kid activities. Maybe you decided to buy a house and so that becomes its own line item. And maybe you're um, starting to think in your 40s and 50s about retiring at some point in your life. And so you can see how these financial stressors start to build up. And so, you know, what you're normally thinking of or the stereotypical thing that you think of, which is, for example, that millennials don't have health care issues, in fact, they do. Everybody has all different types of concerns. And for employers who are shifting more of the health care costs to all of their employees, This is a relatively new thing that's happened over the last 10 years where we've gone from 7% of companies in 2009 that offered high-deductible health care plans to now 70-something percent plus um, and moving to the direction of 80% where they've now shifted those health care costs and concerns onto the backs of their employees, which just ratchets up all of the other stressors. And so one of the things we've seen in our research and that I've seen personally in the work I've done with people um, over the course of my career is one plus one. So one stressor and you add another stressor can actually equal the financial stress of three or four different stressors at any one period of time. It's exponential growth. And so employees are really starting to buckle. And I think this is something that every employer needs to be thinking about. That's kind of a, a downer. <laughs> um. I'm so sorry that, that it's, it's hard. And you can imagine if you're the person actually suffering from financial stress and you don't feel like you have any of the knowledge or tools to help you get out of it. And mm-hmm. so what we're seeing is that employers are partnering with their employees. The ones who are really progressive are, are buying products like Best Money Moves and they're giving it to their employees to help them identify what is the hottest or biggest pain point that they have, the hottest financial stress or biggest pain point, and dealing with how to dial that down. That's what the most progressive employers are doing. And then they're bringing in niche products, like they're bringing in a student loan debt reduction product, or maybe they're helping employees um, by giving them access to earnings faster, or they're trying to get rid of payday loans by making the employer the lender of choice and having employees borrow against themselves because they're actually offering it at a tremendous discount. So there are a lot of things that progressive employers are doing once they recognize what's causing the pain point for their employee populations. Yeah, and it really resonated with me when you said that, you know, Every generation can have concerns around the same topic, healthcare, for instance, but it manifests differently depending on where you are in both your life and career. So nobody is really immune to this. It's just a matter of, you know, how that cumulative effect adds up for where you are versus where your parents might be, for instance. So, well, you asked you asked earlier about why now is the time, right? Why are employers now thinking about this? Why did SAP do a whole study around it? Why do they feel like well-being is so important? And it's because we've reached 10 years after the financial crisis, which was a global phenomenon, we've actually reached a crisis point in this country where we have the lowest level of unemployment in 60-something years. Really something to say, and yet 80-plus percent of employees are reporting severe financial stress or moderate financial stress, and 25% of them are reporting physical symptoms because of it. And so when you look at how employers are deciding to make a move now and why the progressive employers are making that move, it's because the ROI to them is 
10x what it is to the individual employees. So you see this huge ROI in dealing with the financial stress in terms, and you see the results in terms of, you know, unexplained absences from work starting to reduce. You see healthcare costs and outcomes starting to reduce. You see turnover starting to reduce. And employees themselves rate themselves feeling happier and better. So when you have this kind of a huge ROI for employers, the progressive ones lead the way and then everybody else follows suit because you realize that you're, this is just really good use of resources. That's a great point. So, Autumn, I want to turn the tables to you for a minute because you are in this mode of working on this um, well-being at work initiative at SAP Success Factors. And I'm curious to know how you have seen and researched how an employee's financial well-being impacts their performance. I mean, effectively, why should we as an organization care about whether our employees are under financial stress? So Elise spoke to a few of these things, but I wonder if you can expound on those reasons. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Elise did touch on some key points of those outcomes that we see associated with financial stress, because financial stress, the evidence behind it shows that it's a significant stressor. So really all the different types of negative outcomes that we see uh, for employees under high levels of stress are relevant when we talk specifically about financial stress. Um, but I'll, I'll pull out a couple key examples. So one is just the level of distraction. So there's certainly been a lot of research in our literature and that uh, Success Factors has done to see that when employees are experiencing a stressor like financial stress, which might be playing out more in their personal lives, but they certainly don't leave that at the door when they come to work. And so we see an impact on distraction, um, really limiting focus and attention during work, and this can really impact quality and productivity. So the employees are still working at the same company, but they're just not able to achieve at the same level. Uh, and I, I've seen this in my previous work, particularly with high-risk, high-reliability industries. You have workers who are under a lot of financial stress and have potential concerns even for safety incidents. So work errors are getting hurt on the job because it can be so distracting to their work. Um, and then additionally, we have to think about the fact that when employees are under financial stress, it's possible they could be holding multiple jobs. So that's very common for more of your hourly workforce to really to meet um, all of their needs, to have to take on more employment opportunities. And so what that's going to look like is uh, less engagement, less motivation. They perhaps um, might have less energy uh, to be able to expend at your specific company. And the other one I would raise, too, is that I think Elise and I have had this conversation previously, when you get to a certain level of financial stress, frankly, um, even if it might make less sense, you're still willing to walk across the street and take a role at a competitor for very minimal wage increase. And so we have uh, employees who are under financial stress looking for other employment and being willing to jump uh, much more regularly, again, for minimal additional dollars. But because they are in such a stressed state, that doesn't really matter. Um, so obviously, in that instance, we're concerned about retention and commitment, too. So I think I've called out a couple key ones that uh, really align to what Elise was saying when she's talking about looking at the return on investment of, a, of really tackling this financial well-being issue. Uh, that's when we've, I suppose, gotten the company's attention enough to care about it. Behind the scenes, these types of things are, are playing out on a daily basis for employees. 
Thank you for that. So, Elise, you spoke to this a little bit, but um, I'm wondering if you can get a little bit more granular around the types of resources that are most helpful for employees to have access to so they can decrease their financial stress and improve their financial well-being. Is that something where it's there are specific tools and templates, maybe it's classes, but I'm curious what your perspective is on that. Sure. So the reason that we design best money moves around pain points and not around courses is because very few people have the time to do a course. And secondly, learning in a course-like mode may or may not actually give them the information they need to solve the problem they have today. So we have, you know, created best money moves in order to focus on identifying pain points and then using, um, extensive algorithm and machine learning tools to drill up and dial in and figure out what is the very best information that somebody can get. And so they get a personalized and customized approach to solving that pain point. And the other thing that I'm seeing is that the pain points are, again, along a a vast list of concerns. So, for example, student loans might be a concern for your millennials. I'm sure they are. But they're also a concern for your Gen X who are now have babies or they've got young kids and they're worrying about how to save for future student loan payments, or even for your baby boomer employees who are signing student loans for their grandchildren at some of the fastest rates we've ever seen. The answers to solving each of those concerns are different based on not only who they are, but how old they are and what the responsibilities are. And so we found that, you know, taking a course that says, here's your guide to student loans is great, but it doesn't really help people who are, say, baby boomers who are, you know, trying to make a decision about whether to co-sign a student loan or dip into a 1031 tax-free exchange account in order to help pay those bills. So what we're trying to do are develop more tools, more assessment tools, checkups, checklists, Um, best kind of practices, and we do it again across this range of 15 different categories that financial stress falls in because we're really trying to help a large and varied population. Great. Thank you for that explanation and especially some of the examples of things you've talked about. Um, Autumn, this kind of goes back to you explained a lot around how financial stress can affect Um, an individual's performance. What does SAP see as the role of the organization in supporting an employee's financial well-being? How do they kind of fit into that Mm -hmm. equation? Yeah, good point. And I think that one really clear way that organizations can support employees' financial well-being are through the resources that Elise just talked through. So being able to provide resources directly to the employee to increase their knowledge, their skill, their motivation um, when it comes to financial well-being. So basically giving them more resources and capabilities to handle their own financial uh, well-being. Um, but I also really want to address a couple of other key elements there. So I, I mentioned earlier this organizational model. It has several facets that we use to define uh, organizational well-being culture. And each of these, though we won't have time today, each of them do have implications for financial well-being. So I want to let me give you two examples. The first one is the company purpose. Um, so you might think, well, that's just their values or their guiding principles. I mean, how does that have a relationship to financial well-being? But I have worked with companies, and and we have observed through our research at SAP Success Factors, that some companies can have an underlying value of offering good quality wages and and stability and security in employment. 
Um, and it doesn't take a PhD or a researcher to be able to see the link between a company that would have that underlying value as a business and then building processes and practices and policies uh, aligned to that that would have impact on their employees' financial well-being. So uh, even one company I had worked with was a very small business, so only had about a dozen employees. Um, but they made a conscious decision that they were not going to bring on any further employees until they were sure that they had enough work in the pipeline, enough infrastructure, that they could offer long-term stable employment for that employee. Um, so that's what I'm talking about when I say having a value around that, that that's a guiding principle for the company, um, that we're really going to offer good quality wages, we're going to offer good benefits, and we're going to make sure that we have a really stable resourcing plan in place so that when we bring employees on, they can count on us to have stable long-term employment. And another key example would be practices. So that's another element of our organizational well-being culture model. Uh, so this idea of what are the practices that a company has in place and how does that help to facilitate employees' well-being? Well, in this case, the most direct practice would be compensation practices. So we recently did a study uh, as the human capital management research team. My colleague, Lauren, led an effort to better understand companies' compensation practices. And the answer there is a little bit bleak and confusing, unfortunately. So companies do not have the level of transparency and clarity and openness um, that should be in place when it comes to such an important decision like compensation. And so part of the equation for an employee's financial well-being is to understand, you know, why am I getting paid what I am? What's the prospect that I could get paid more in the future? Uh, what do I need to do differently? Or what role do I even have in influencing whether I could make more money? Um, those are the, the information that would be helpful to employees to increase that level of clarity uh, of what their financial situation looks like in, in the company they're currently at. Um, so that's another key role that organizations could play in the design of their compensation practices to foster positive uh, financial well-being of their employees. So those are just two examples, Aubrey. There's many more, but um, I, I hope that we can start to see here that the organization has quite a large role in, in how it actually executes its operations and designs its practices that also influence employees' financial well-being. Yeah, I, I really appreciated how you kind of brought in different areas and different topics that can have an impact on these things, like the performance management function, like the transparency around comp and, and benefits to make sure that everybody's kind of on the same page and they have that knowledge. So Elise, you know, we've talked a, little, a lot, both you and Autumn, about organizations that need to be acting with an employee's financial well-being in mind. But I think that one of the gaps in this thought process is that companies frequently just, they don't know what they don't know. Um, so I'm wondering if you can comment on the types of data that companies can access or can collect to get more insights into what the financial status and well-being is of their employees so they can make those right choices and they can actually implement programs that, to your point, addresses the pain points that employees actually have. Sure. I think it's really important that employers uh, talk to their employees and ask them what it is that's bothering them. And one of the things that we do inside Best Money Moves is we actually, as I said earlier, measure financial stress in 15 categories. We provide that back in real time to uh, HR managers in the form of a dashboard. And so they see the stress levels of their employees in all these different categories. 
And we've had employers say to us, like, for example, for our customers in Denver, where housing is really hard to find, in some cases even harder than San Francisco. And they said, wow, we had no idea that that was, I mean, we knew sort of intellectually that was a problem. We didn't, we didn't know it was an eight out of 10. <laughs> and we really need to get on that and find some additional programming for our employees. So they really need to see sort of, you know, usage. They need to see stress levels. We find it's very helpful. Our employers ask for credit scores. Um, they don't see individuals' credit scores like Autumn. I wouldn't see yours, for example. But you see across the, you know, baseline of your entire population, you know, what credit looks like and, you know, the high and the low credit scores. Again, it's completely anonymous data so that you have a sense in real world terms of how you can actually measure whether reducing financial stress has that kind of impact. I think it's also important for employers to identify in their own world, you know, where cost centers are, are running amok. And for many employers right now, that's in the healthcare arena. Designing tests where you can measure financial stress against healthcare costs and outcomes or against workplace accidents, as Autumn brought up earlier, or against unexplained absences from work, which we know is a big issue, especially in the United States. Being able to design tests and having a flexible system that allows you to do that, we think is really important. It's why we architected Best Money Moves that way, and it's really unique in the industry. But you need to have the thought leadership behind that to really understand where you want to make that work and how you want to make that work. Great. Thank you for that. Um, and, th- and that gives some, some real concrete things that organizations can think about in terms of understanding who in their population has some of these stressors and what can be done. So, Autumn, we have only a few minutes left, so I want to move um, pretty quickly here. But you started to talk about some of the different ways that an organization can help um, employees with their financial well-being. But what about the role of the leader or the employee's manager? If financial stress is an appropriate topic um, of conversation to be had, what are the questions that they should ask, um, you know, without digging too far into some um, places where they should not be talking about. So I don't know if you can give some direction and some guidance around that. Yeah, this one is a tough issue to discuss. I mean, finances generally are tough issues to discuss. So when I, when I was preparing to have this conversation and then discussion with Elise previously, um, I think we'd all agree that finances are things we might not even talk about with our closest family or friends. They don't know how much money we make or how well we're doing financially per se. So it's not surprising that this conversation is not going to be one that's probably had quite regularly or, or even comfortable um, for leaders. So the way that I would approach this quite simply is similar to what I started to reference previously around compensation. Um, there's one thing that the organization is responsible for having as far as a conversation about finances, and that's when it comes to compensation. And so part of that research study that we did um, that I mentioned earlier was to see that managers really didn't know how to talk about compensation or explain comp decisions very appropriately or sensitively. And so when we think about what the appropriate type of conversation would be to be had here, it really would be the leaders opening up the dialogue to answer some of those questions that I talked about earlier. So things like, um, here's the process that was taken into consideration when compensation decisions were made. Here's what it would look like to um, move to the next level in performance or the next level in compensation based on these criteria uh, and answering any questions that the employee has around that. Sometimes when we work with leaders and we think about what good leadership looks like, it's really just creating the space 
for the employees to be able to uh, give their input, ask their questions, and um, perhaps be able to disclose some things that are happening for them personally that might even be short-term that a leader can perhaps even help with in some way. Um, to, it would be a lot worse to not know um, when an employee turns in their resignation letter um, than to be able to have the leader at least be aware of it. And instead of the leader explicitly asking um, what the financial circumstances are of the employee and do they have any stress, which would not be appropriate, um, is really to start with what they are responsible for, which is the compensation discussion, which is at its base about money. And then that leaves the door open for the employee to, again, answer questions or ask questions rather and be able to share any input. Great. Thank you for that. So I have um, a few questions that I'd love to get some some tag team answers on. Um, and for this, Elise, I'm going to start with you. If you could really dumb it down and crystallize it, what do you think is the single biggest mistake that employees make when it comes to their own financial well-being? That's easy. They don't want to look at it. <laughs> Whether you're doing well or you're not doing so well, um, when you have financial stress, our own body you know, reaction is to run as far in the opposite direction as possible. And what I want everybody to do who's stressed financially is to pick your head up out of the sandbox, come back to the center, and just know that the more you think about it, the more you get help for it, reach out and touch somebody, the easier and better and faster your financial situation is going to get. I, I promise that's the case. That's a, an excellent point to make. Um, okay, Autumn, so what's your take? What do you think is the biggest mistake that employees make when it comes to financial well-being? I think I think mine's very aligned with Elise. When I, when I think about this topic, I definitely put my psychologist hat on and think about what are fundamental human motives and behaviors. Why do we act the way we act? And I think it shouldn't be any surprise to anyone that we tend to focus more on short-term needs rather than what you know an ambiguous and ill-defined future is going to look like. And so what that means is that employees perhaps might be more focused on uh, the immediacy of pay, uh, the immediacy of uh, needing to have money to do certain things tomorrow, uh, and that might limit their ability to think ahead of what the future might hold. Um, and so I think what happens here just as people is that we have the intention to focus more on short-term and immediate things. And so bigger picture of what our financial benefits package might look like and uh, what we might be able to take advantage of that employers are offering that's beyond just uh, immediate pay in our pockets on a weekly basis can sometimes get lost and not um, appropriately considered. So I, I really give Elise a lot of credit because when I think about what needs to happen here to make uh, people think longer term, think bigger picture, um, we're basically talking about rewiring some pretty innate human motives and, and attitudes uh, to get employees to think a little bit differently in that way. Right. That's great. Thank you. Now, Autumn, if I were to turn the question on its head and say, what is the one big mistake you think HR is making um, when it comes to financial mm -hmm. wellness programs, what comes to mind then? Yeah, so what comes to mind is, and I've seen this quite regularly, first, I, I want to applaud HR because I have seen more and more that this idea of financial well-being is becoming a pillar or a facet of companies' models when, and how they define well-being. So that's great. Um, but I think the approach that they're using, um, which is perhaps a bit immature, is this idea of more campaign-driven, one-size-fits-all approaches uh, when we talk about financial wellness. Uh, so I've seen a lot of companies run campaigns like, 
um, for the next month, let's employees try to pay off as much credit card debt as we can. Or, hey, employees, let's try to pay down our student loans as much as we can by the end of the year. Or uh, let's all rally together and try to increase our contributions to our 401ks. Uh, and what I see in those um, circumstances is that there's quite low participation rate from employees because this isn't really relevant or the most pressing issue or they don't have the capacity or to do the types of campaigns or that specific ask or, or target that's been set. Um, but then the employees that do participate actually make what I've seen significant gains on that topic. Um, so what I would really argue here is that HR um, has some growth to do when it thinks about the really complex and personalized profiles that employees have when it comes to financial well-being and to move away from these campaigns uh, and different types of challenges and to set up a system that would work better to meet the employees where they're at in their personal financial journey. Great. Well said. Elise, would you agree with that or do you have a different opinion? Well, I do think you have to meet employees where they're at. There have been some studies done that if you properly incentivize employees, they will participate in financial wellness programs, uh, some better than others. And it's interesting to be able to test that, uh, have a system that has gamification built in, leverage that gamification inside your own system, uh, and really find a way to motivate employees. Because we know that if you give employees the right carrot, They'll walk more steps, they'll give up smoking, they'll, they'll even lose weight, right? And these are the same sort of sticky personal things that when it comes to money, you know, what can we do to get people to spend less on restaurants and cook more at home and, and bring their lunch to work and, you know, just the easy kinds of low-hanging fruit that can make a profound difference in a, in a family's financial life going forward. So how do we incentivize employees properly? I think that's a place that HR can really dig in and make, make a difference. I love that call to action for sure. Okay, so one more question. Um, Elise, if there was one thing you want employees to know or think about differently than their current understanding of what financial well-being means for employees, um, what would it be? Well, I think I'd like people to know that HR has their back. So I've now talked to hundreds and hundreds of companies around the country, uh, personally, individually, and as well as speaking in large groups. And the one thing that I see is that HR is not your enemy. They're your friend. And they really want to fix this problem. It's emerged as a huge problem that affects every part, as, as Autumn so perfectly said earlier, every part of the workday, you know, whether it's just productivity um, or it's workplace accidents or it's unexplained absences or healthcare costs and outcomes, you know, wherever it comes down for that company, HR is there trying to solve it. And I think that we've seen, uh, you know, as HR is evolving into, instead of just being a cost center, but being sort of the driving people first um, and personnel first sort of environment, I think they're really there to help. And so I'd love for employees to feel like they could reach out and ask for the help that they need. And when you, when you ask, I'm here to tell you, I'm seeing HR step up and go to you know, the C-level and say, listen, we need to do this for our employees. This is going to make a difference. Great. Thank you. And lastly, Autumn, do you share that perspective or do you have a different opinion on what the one thing you'd want people to know is? I think I'm aligned in that. I think Elise has painted a really great picture of how HR can support employees uh, in the role that they can play and how they are 
to her point, stepping up further to do that. I think the one thing I would emphasize to employers uh, and particularly HR who are listening to this is is to really just go back to the interconnectedness between employee financial well-being and the organizational systems and practices. So I would love to see um, not just the director of total rewards or benefits uh, within HR really advocating for financial well-being resources for employees, but the director of compensation to be alongside them and have a broader, more comprehensive view of how they could adjust practices, policies, offer different types of uh, resources from a compensation standpoint, as well as a benefit standpoint to address this issue. So, um, that's where I've seen it be most effective is that really interconnected and strategic view across different parts of HR uh, to be advocates on this topic. Great. Thank you both, Elise and Autumn, so much for this conversation and for speaking with us today on a topic that I just think is so important for people to consider and think about both from a personal perspective as well as an organizational perspective. This has been great. Well, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Aubrey. Great. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast if you did enjoy today's conversation. You can find HCI on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and on the YouTube channel HCI Talent. If you are listening on iTunes, we'd love to get your rating and your review. It helps other professionals and like-minded people discover our program. We'd like to close by saying thank you to our listeners for spending some time with us today. From all of us at HCI, thank you so much for listening.